The polls have closed, but the outcome of the 2020 U.S. presidential election has yet to be decided. I'm Ray Suarez. Thank you for joining me for this special edition of The Take. Malika Bilal is entrusting me with bringing you the answers to the questions you're asking. The headlines paint a new picture of where U.S. electoral politics now rest. For American voters who saw Donald Trump as an aberration in U.S. politics, this close race could signal an even greater divide in the electorate. There are a number of paths this journey can take. Perhaps a blue wall will deliver a win to the former vice president, Joe Biden. Or President Trump could ensnare the hundreds of thousands of uncounted ballots in legal entanglements. So today we'll help unpack how the U.S. election went from an election day to no clear end in sight. I'm here with the Al Jazeera Dream Team, socially safe, of course, via Zoom, They've had an eagle eye on every angle of this race, and they're connecting the dots for us on aljazeera.com. Steve Chigaris is the political editor for Al Jazeera Digital. Jennifer Glass is international correspondent and managing editor for the Americas. Zahra Rasul is the editorial lead for AJ Contrast. And Patricia Sabga is a longtime international reporter, now the managing business editor for Al Jazeera. Steve, you've been watching the electoral math very closely. Explain to us just what pieces of the puzzle are still missing. And is this looking like it's going to take a long time to sort out? Well, neither Trump nor Joe Biden have received or have been projected to win 270 electoral votes, which they need uh, to win the Electoral College and be elected president. But the paths for both are not the same. At this point, Joe Biden's path to 270 is actually, he has more paths to 270 than, than Donald Trump. We heard talk in the days leading up to Election Day of a blue wave, of a red wave. Did both waves show up? This was a big turnout election, wasn't it? It was a huge turnout election, and we're still trying to get a handle uh, on exactly uh, who showed up. But what, what one place where the pollsters were correct, I think, is that we knew going in that the flood of early ballots, people who decided to vote either by mail before Election Day and in person, those voters voted overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. In terms of people who decided to vote on Election Day, the question going into Election Day was, would Trump be able to have a groundswell of voters showing up in person on the day of? And I think the verdict is in uh, at least to a certain extent, that yes, he was able to do that. Uh, and again, the polling showed going into Election Day that Trump would do much better among Election Day voters in person on the day of. Uh, and it seems like he did have a, a groundswell of Republican or pro-Trump voters coming in on the day of yesterday. And that's why we're in this situation. In the late hours of the night, when it was clear that votes were still being counted, states had not been called, and millions of paper ballots had yet to be counted, the race was clearly narrowing between President Trump and Joe Biden. But the president declared victory and called for the vote counting to stop. Was this a clarion call to supporters, to the new Supreme Court justice? What was Donald Trump 
trying to tell us right at that moment at his private White House party. Patricia, you were watching. I don't pretend to know what exactly is in President Trump's heart or exactly read into the motives of what he was trying to do. But this was telegraphed even before people were going to the polls yesterday. He was casting doubt and setting it up to challenge the results of the election. And indeed, that could be the outcome that we get. So this was no surprise. In terms of the markets, indeed, this was something, this was a scenario that had been priced in, which is probably one of the reasons why you're seeing that the markets, the U.S. stock markets at least, all opened higher this morning. So what is he trying to telegraph? Who is he trying to rally? You can't say that definitively, but this was most certainly expected. We're looking at the possible disenfranchisement of thousands of voters, particularly black voters, as the ballots are being counted in Georgia. Zahra, you live in New York City. Your recent film for Al Jazeera, which is still making the rounds on the film festival circuit after a Sundance debut, had you talking with many women who've been incarcerated, and that's largely a disenfranchised group in America. What was the restoration of their rights, the rights of returning citizens, former felons? What has that meant in this election cycle? So just to be clear, when we talk about the restoration of rights, there are a lot of states that are trying to restore rights for convicted felons, but there are still an estimated 6.1 million Americans who are forbidden to vote because of laws that restrict voting rights for felons. That's one in every 40 American adults. And this disproportionately affects Black Americans in this country. So while there are states that are restoring voting rights, they're not completely restoring voting rights for all people convicted of felons or who've served their sentence in prison and jails. And I think there are a lot of them that are still not able to vote. And I think that movement and the activism and the push to increase voting rights for formerly incarcerated is going to continue for um, years to come. People who oppose these laws passionately say that for them, there's no doubt these have uh, specific racial outcomes and goals, and they think the bills are racist. But a lot of people who support these laws say, no, no, these laws are entirely colorblind. There's no reference to race at all. Now that you've done this work on this issue, interviewed all these people, traveled around, where did you come down on that question? I mean, of course, these laws are racist. Anybody who says otherwise is unwilling to look at the numbers and the facts that are very clear. This is just a continuation of the slavery era laws in this country. If we look historically in America, the people that have been able to vote initially were only white men, were rich people. Everybody else were excluded from voting. And the last group to get any voting rights in this country were black people. This is just a way to restrict the number of people who are able to go out to vote. And specifically, anybody who follows American politics knows that the black community in this country heavily votes Democratic. And so this has been something that Republicans in this country have vehemently opposed is increasing, you know, voter rights for the formerly incarcerated. Jennifer, well, welcome home. You wrote a piece recently about voting in America for the first time in decades. Even the most casual observer probably associates you with datelines in Central Asia or 
the mountains around Kabul or the Crimean Peninsula, various other places that don't involve a sign that says you can't electioneer within 100 feet of the polling place. Tell us about what it's like to be back in America, particularly at this fraught moment. Thank you. It's good to be home. My election experience was really easy and really quite overwhelming. Uh, I barely got back to my car before I burst into tears for how humbling it is to have the privilege of being an American, to have a voice in our system. And Zaha makes a, a very good point that so many Americans don't have a voice. I think, you know, for me, it was a rare moment of unity because you had people from different parties at the polling system all trying to help you get in and get your ballot in. Everybody was like, congratulations. Apparently inside the polling station, they applaud when you vote. Sorry, I'm getting choked up even now. Um, sorry, this is embarrassing. But it's such a privilege that we take for granted. And I have lived all around the world where votes are stolen and people wait for days sometimes to vote, to have their vote stolen. And while this is a very messy process right now, we do have laws in place. There are big guardrails around things. There, uh, despite all of the talk of fraud and late things, there are laws to ensure that people who got a chance to vote, that vote will be counted. And that is what I think sets America apart. I've been abroad for for the last 25 years. And every time an American election rolls around, people in whatever country I'm in, whether it's been in Africa or in Central Asia or the Middle East, they say to me, vote very carefully because you're voting for the rest of the world. You know, Zahra, young voters who don't have all that experience of watching elections elsewhere in the world, of having voted in many elections or covered many elections, they're new to all this. Do they come at this with a less idealistic, perhaps more cynical view of the country because of what it's been like during the years that they've been growing up? I think young people have more idealism and are less patient for change. And, you know, we've seen that, I've seen that a lot among my friends, among people my age group, is they don't understand this idea of voting just for in incremental change when you're seeing so clearly the flaws in the system, the flaws in the country, the, the, the stark inequality. And, you know, they, I think they're less patient to voting for the lesser of two evils, as we've so often called every election in this country. So I would say they are, they're more idealistic and less cynical, more radical. That's how I would, I would cat uh, categorize a lot of the young voters. Steve, one of the things leading up to the election that people who were predicting a blue wave were taking comfort in was that it would serve as a repudiation of the Trump years and Trumpism. That if an enormous vote came out, not only a record turnout, but a very clear margin and a clear victory for the Democratic nominee that it would help the country deal with what it had just been through. This result seems a lot more ambiguous. Even if Joe Biden prevails, it's not as if he's going to have this iron hand with which to impose his will on America. You know, there was just, again, an assumption among folks that over the last four years, Trump has, has done more damage to his reputation and has ruffled so many feathers 
that people were just eager to move on, to treat the last four years, as you said, as an aberration. Yet what we saw is a record number of people showing up to the polls, basically uh, saying the same thing that they said in 2016, which was, in, at least in battleground states, there are still a large number of people who support this president for whatever reason, whether it's a sinister reason or a legitimately a personal belief that he is doing uh, great things in this country. And I think what was lost, especially in the last few months leading up to the election and people reading the polls and, and hearing all of the discussion about this president and his behavior and his stewardship of the government was that there was a, a, just an eagerness to move on. And clearly, clearly that is not the case. At this point, we just don't know whether there's going to be a protracted wrestling match over the remaining ballots, whether there will be continued efforts to call the validity of the totals into question, where America now stands, and where the belief in our process lies is still an open question. Steve, President Trump's announcement late on election night that he was going to launch legal challenges that, in fact, a fraud had been committed on the American people. Has a president ever done anything like that before? Definitely in modern political history, the things that this president has said, some of his behavior is maybe not without precedent, but definitely not how presidents have comported themselves. You know, his supporters are going to say, this is exactly why we like Donald Trump. He's just speaking to his supporters. No president should be saying the things that he's saying and trying to call an election fraudulent. And frankly, he shouldn't. This is a process in which states are counting their votes, votes that were legally cast. And every four years in a presidential election, these votes take a while to be counted. For the president to come out and say the vote needs to stop in certain places, yet he said in other places it needs to continue, places where he thought he could benefit from a continued count. It, it's an inconsistent statement, but it's also a quite a dangerous statement as well. What is heartening, though, and again, I think the beauty of the United States of America is, yes, the president can say something like this, but there will always be vocal backlash and resistance to that kind of rhetoric. One of the beauties of this system is it's ugly sometimes. The president sometimes makes it more stressful uh, than it needs to be, or than it should be, or that any other president would ever have done. But the system, you have to have faith in the system that it's ultimately going to work. And most of the time, it seems to do so, at least in the, the history of this country. I can't tell you how many people came up to me in the last several days, not hand-wringy, melodramatic, nervous Nellies, but people I know as sort of serious, grown-up, solid citizens, really worried, seriously worried, about the possibility of days of street action, of protracted violence, of people bringing weapons to places and then things getting out of hand. Will these next days have the potential to also show us something good about ourselves as we work this stuff out? Patty, what do you think? Look, if we get if we don't get an eruption of violence or protest, then it will show that, you know, we're sitting down, we're hashing it out, we're putting it through the courts, we're putting it through 
all those levers of government that give us the checks and balances and move us toward the perfection that we so imperfectly strive for. But the question is, how imperfect will we be as we move toward it? But there's something else that's also looming over this, Ray, which is while while these, these vote counts are stretched out longer and longer, a lot of Americans are really suffering economically. I mean, we've got, we lost 22 million jobs to lockdowns and only about half of them have been recovered. Main Street is suffering. Businesses are suffering. The unemployed are suffering. They are struggling. What they desperately need more than anything is another financial lifeline from Congress for workers who don't have a job. They are falling further and further behind. We are seeing widening inequalities, widening inequalities along racial lines with wealth and income, and also widening gender inequalities as well, with women falling out of the workforce at an alarming rate. If I may provide an answer to that question as well in terms of are we seeing anything positive come out of this? I am a bit uncomfortable with equating violence and protest together. When we say violence and protest in the same sentence, we imply that well, the protesting is going to lead to violence. I think one of the few things that have that has been a ray of hope for young people amidst everything that has happened in the past four years and, and the police shootings and the COVID pandemic is the ability to go out onto the streets and have your voice heard through protests. Having the Black Lives Matter movement reinvigorate young people's, you know, civic engagement and, you know, participation in politics was incredibly essential to keep them motivated. And so I think like, you know, if we do see protests come out of this in the process of the vote count, and while we're figuring out who the president is, I don't see that as a bad thing. I think that that is, you know, that is, that, that is a way of showing, you know, showing the world and showing this country that people actually do care about what's happening here. I wonder whether the mood of activism and idealism that sent millions onto the street in this country after Memorial Day is going to be different in a winter of political turbulence, of an uncertain future, and a less clear way forward for the country now that the election is over. I'd like to believe that, you know, there are a lot of people in this country that are actually committed to creating the real generational systemic changes that this country actually needs. And, you know, the protests would just be a, a voicing of their discontent. And I'd like to believe that, you know, not most of the protests wouldn't be violent. So, you know, I, I think I'm going to are more on the side of optimism, but you, you, you could be right. We know, Steve, a little bit more than we did before Election Day about what people thought of as the top issues, what drove them to the polls. What are exit polls telling us about the top mind issues and what people are worried about? The two most important issues that we saw in the exit polls nationally and in the battlegrounds was the handling of the coronavirus and the economy. The latter, not a surprise. Economy jobs always tends to be up pretty high. Coronavirus, not a surprise either, considering that has consumed everybody's life in this country and around the world for, for many, many months now. But what was interesting coming out of these exit polls was that it seemed that even though more people said coronavirus was their top issue and they thought that Joe Biden would be better to handle that issue, 
it was the economy in which Donald Trump had an advantage, which he had had an advantage on through his entire presidency, to be honest with you. And it seems to me that his handling of the coronavirus didn't negatively affect him, especially in these battleground states. And so as, as important as coronavirus and the handling of it, it didn't seem as, it was, as if it was affecting their vote as much as I think we thought it was going to. I want to hear from you all about what Americans think and what Americans believe, some of which is, well, I don't want to put my thumb on the scale as a reporter, but some of it's just batty. If you believe that global elites are eating children, that the deceased son of a deceased president is going to return and reveal, in fact, that uh, the current president was secretly put in power to end this worldwide Satanist conspiracy, you might be dismissed as a kook, or if you live in northern Georgia, you might get elected to Congress. It is really an, an amazing time in the life of the country because people don't necessarily trust people like you to tell them what's really happening in the world. They have a lot of sources for information, and some of those sources tell them crazy things, and they are as likely to believe that, it seems, as they are, well, people like you, Jennifer Glass, and I find you very credible. Thank you, Ray. You know, you're talking about QAnon. We have covered it extensively. It's a fascinating subject. And I think what you say is absolutely right. When you talk to people who follow QAnon, and this is this, depending on who you speak to, a conspiracy theory that there's a global child trafficking ring run by a deep state and that Donald Trump is here to be the savior, that they drink the blood of children. The deeper you get into it, the stranger it seems. But as you said, people are finding their own information and, and nobody seems to go to the source. And that seems to be the problem. And of course, uh, President Trump's constant clarion of fake news, fake news, fake news. When you talk to these people about QAnon, you talk to QAnon followers, they say, do the research yourself. It's all there. Do the research. And as somebody who is, you know, has has been a journalist I'm very fond of primary sources and accurate sources. It can be very frustrating because it is an astounding phenomenon. And we have seen, of course, members of Trump's own administration actually use some of the phrases known to QAnon, including Donald Trump himself, at a big gathering at the White House, including his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. And so when you give a little credence here and a little credence there and say the storm is coming, that is, that is a call to, to people who, who say, oh, look, see, I was right. And, and then all of a sudden you have this, this theory. And, and as you say, Marjorie Taylor Greene will be going to Congress. And she is not the only one who has espoused these theories. And whether it was to whether it was simply to get votes or whether it was it is something people truly believe at this point it doesn't really matter because now it's part of it's part of where we are patty sabga does it call into question the value of what we do because when people believe those kinds of things just telling them the facts doesn't really make that much difference doesn't seem to have much convincing power. It doesn't change or redirect or rechannel their interests or energies. They just say, well, as I've heard endless times over the last four years, you are part of a group of people that's actually 
making the world worse by spreading lies and misinformation. I have my own sources of information, which I give more credence, and so I'm going to ignore you. Even as you spend time trying to find out what the actual truth is, there's a, now a sizable portion of the American public that tells pollsters that they believe that journalists invent stories, not, not shade them or distort them or bring their biases to them, but invent stories. And I'm not, I'm not sure I know what to do with an audience member who is convinced that that's true. We've seen far too many U.S. news outlets embrace a partisan model because it's very profitable to scream into an echo chamber and to validate people's points of view. And it's really unfortunate how it has eroded confidence in traditional news sources. And we even see justifications of this. We've seen newsrooms where activism and journalism, I'm not painting all young people with the same, with the same brush, but when you have very young, passionate journalists who want to see change, they, it's not that they deliberately don't report on something. They don't, maybe perhaps don't think to ask the questions. And that also speaks as well to a lot of institutional knowledge that was lost in major newsrooms around the country as a result of the Great Recession. So we had this perfect storm. First, we had a gutting of institutional knowledge and the old guard, like people that I learned from, really fantastic journalists. I mean, the journalists I, I trained with at CNN in the very, very early days, these guys were all Vietnam War correspondents. They were great. I mean, I, and they were rigorous and they were tough and they didn't go easy on you. And they really, really put forward the line of unbiased journalism. So that was lost. And then you had news organizations embracing partisan models to become profitable. And then you had the third, the third ingredient in this perfect storm, social media platforms, which amplify these echo chambers, which amplify misinformation. So I will say this, however, if you actually look at a lot of the polling, trust is highest in news organizations that focus on business news. And even though, even though data can be weaponized, at the end of the day, we see where these things move. My belief is that if you're reporting on business news and the economy, and if you've got investors who are making bets on that, well, if you're only giving them half the story, then those bets are going to turn sour. So it's actually in the interests of journalists and news organizations to really construct a really rigorous framework of inquiry that jettisons your cultural baggage and your bias and really tries to get a great picture. Well, speaking up for the value of old journalistic truths, even at a time when the abandonment of those truths helps create the social landscape that we're standing on right now with voters at each other's throats with voters believing entirely different truths about the world. It's not as if they are standing on common ground and disagree about what to do next. They stand on different planets and shout at each other across a chasm about what to do next. And it, in my bad days, I worry a lot about what that means for the coming years in this country and the world that my young adult children are going to someday run, I guess, as I'm in my, in my dotage. And as a young guy, Steve Chigaris, uh, you actually have to make a career in that much more complicated world where 
truth is an option. It's an interesting attribute, but for a lot of people, not a fundamental requirement for the media content that, that they consume. Yeah, well, I'm not as young as you think I am, but well, you're <laughs> younger than me, pal. And and, and, I, and I can't and I can't tell you I can't echo what Patty just said enough. It's 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 fascinating to watch how people's consumption of their media that they want to consume has increased exponentially just even in the last four or five years in the age of of Donald Trump. And and what it's done is. It's really put people in two corners. You mentioned the chasm that people are yelling uh, across at each other. Well, that is exacerbated, I think, in a lot of ways by some of the media, by definitely by Twitter and Facebook, uh, where it encourages people to have the most outrageous or explosive opinion on something and, and doesn't encourage debate or nuanced discussion but just who can get on their side of the chasm and yell the loudest. And that is being reflected in, in, in some of the media uh, coverage of politics. Given what you've all been saying over the course of this conversation, here we stand after this contentious election, where in some ways the worst way you could set the table for further conflict is to have a really close result. Somebody's going to win, but not by much. As you look out at the coming weeks from today, an election that has to be certified in December and a new president that has to take an oath of office in January, what will you be looking for in this country that'll set the tone for our conflicts in the coming weeks and months? Zara Rasul. Um, you know, this, the, the conversation here, the, the comments that Steve and Patty made are really interesting because it's very symbolic of the generational divide in this country. You know, there is so sort of the reminiscing for the, the old times and the way journalism was done. I don't think that's how I feel. You know, I don't miss the old way of doing, doing journalism. I don't miss the old way of us getting news because I think where we are right now is because of the way things were done before. And yes, you know, those those veteran journalists who went to Vietnam and covered the war, they also reported from a very narrow perspective and lens, which led to the kind of elitism that we're seeing in the media industry right now. So I think what I see going forward is, you know, I think at least from the perspective of somebody who is a millennial and, you know, is is not willing to just work for incremental change, but for more radical change, I'm hoping that, you know, you're going to see at least among the younger people, they're going to move more left. They are much more supportive of, quote unquote, socialistic policies in this country. And I think you're going to see a lot more people like AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Taleb, Cory Bush, Jamal Bowman, all of those candidates sort of gain more power at local levels. And hopefully we'll see that seep up to the top at some point in the next several decades. Jennifer Glass? I think it's important for people to try and have a constellation of friends. So I, I've been very disheartened by the fact that liberal's a dirty word or conservative's a bad word and, and somehow we don't like each other. If everybody can try and look at other people as people, as human beings, as Americans, rather than as Republicans or Democrats or liberals or conservatives, I, I'm hoping that's where we end up whoever becomes president. 
Well, as the only boomer on the panel, it's my job to be the buzzkill and end this interesting conversation. That's The Take. I'm Ray Suarez. Thank you for joining us on this special post-election edition. This episode was produced by senior producer Ney Alvarez. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. And Graylin Brashear is the head of audio. We'll be back.